This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the health department reports almost 3,300 new cases of COVID-19. That drives the total to more than 103,000 since the pandemic began. Florida has begun cracking down on bars and restaurants that ignore social distancing and capacity limits during the COVID crisis. An Orlando pub has earned the dubious distinction of becoming the first bar in Florida to have its liquor license suspended for violating the governor's order. Ron DeSantis holds another press conference to talk about the state's efforts to contain coronavirus, but he's getting bad reviews from Senate Democrats who say he's not doing enough. Their biggest concern is his refusal to issue a statewide order requiring protective masking, but the governor says that's not going to happen. Leaders of the state universities present their plans for what they hope is a safe reopening of Florida's higher education system. Each of the 12 universities has its own plan, and they're endorsed by the state Surgeon General. Florida's Secretary of State says the election system is preparing for the worst this year. Laurel Lee says they have spent millions hardening security of local networks, training election workers to prevent hackers from getting in. She's our guest today on the Sunrise Soapbox. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and the story of a Florida man who steered a very expensive boat into four channel markers before dumping it over an oyster bed. Plus a guy who went a little too far in his protest against face masks. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, June 24th. After weeks of criticism about bars and restaurants ignoring social distancing and capacity limits imposed by the governor during the COVID crisis, Ron DeSantis finally brings the hammer down. The guidelines are in place for a reason. They're not doing it just to do it. The reason that they're doing it is because you want to have environments that are not going to be huge risks for transmission. And if you don't follow the guidelines and you pack huge numbers of people indoors that are very close, you're creating an environment that you're going to see more spread. And I think we've seen that with some of the younger. And obviously, I'm not harping only on like a restaurant because most of them have done a great job and obviously the social contact that's going on is far beyond just that i mean people are hanging out at people's houses are doing all kinds of stuff they're very active uh, but but it is important uh to follow the guidelines and if people see a, a pub or a restaurant you know if they're operating at 55 percent okay give them a warning tell them hey 50. But if you go in and it's just like mayhem, like Dance Party USA, and it's packed to the rafters, uh, that's just cut and dry, and that's not just an innocent mistake. And so I told him, no tolerance for that. Just suspend the license, and then we'll move on. And then people will, I hopefully, get the message uh, that these, um, these guidelines are in place for a reason. The first bar to have its license suspended is the Knight's Pub in Orlando that's near the University of Central Florida. Department of Business and Professional Regulation Secretary Halsey Bashirs says they ignored the rules. And 13 employees and 28 customers eventually tested positive for the virus. After discovering that there were some flagrant violations with the Knight's Pub, based on contact tracing, it was very easy. 13 employees, we had 28 patrons that tested positive, and due to their advertisements, we pulled their liquor license. I have contacted several sheriffs who want to continue to do that throughout the state. Those that are in flagrant violation, we have ABT officers that are going to be out from now on from 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. checking on these bars and restaurants that are in uh, violation of this, and we are going to issue 
uh, a warning to those that are trying to do the best they can, but that's not what we're talking about. But like I said, those that were flagrant will be just um, will be suspending their license. That starts. Uh, we started this actually last week, right now, last week. And we're going to continue this until we get this right. The state had not been aggressive in regulating businesses since the first phase of reopening began back on May 4th, but now that there has been a spike in new cases, the governor says they'll be cracking down on flagrant violations. Look, it's just not worth it to try to just go totally beyond uh, these guidelines. I mean, they're in place for a reason. Uh, they were done basic on consultation with folks in the medical business communities, the, the community as a whole, uh, so that uh, you know, we would be able to have low-risk environments operating. And uh, if you're not willing to do that, then um, you're going to get uh, going to get a visit here from, um, you know, I guess he'll he'll be kind of the grim reaper in terms of business licenses because uh, there's not going to be any tolerance for it. And I will say most of the folks have done a great job. Uh, most of the citizens who've gone in have done a great job in exercising the appropriate restraint. Uh, so we really, really appreciate that. While the governor was talking, several Democrats who serve in the state Senate were watching, and they did not like what they saw. Senator Lori Berman of Broward County wanted some words of reassurance that the state is dealing with a spike of new cases. It was really interesting watching the, the governor's press conference now because he said COVID cases are rising. We know it's community spread. And then he didn't offer us any solutions. There was no leadership. He didn't say what he's going to be doing about it. We don't know, you know, he said, yeah, so we have a mask require a, a voluntary mask requirement. And yeah, we're hearing anecdotally that it's socially, but we didn't hear any real plan of action. And it's really disappointing that our leadership isn't giving us a plan of action when the numbers are rising. And it's really scary for the average Floridian to think about the fact that the cases are going up, your risk of exposure is going up, your risk of getting sick is increasing, and yet there's no real concrete plan that we're going to deal with it. And then the other um, issue I just wanted to talk about real briefly, it, it was raised in the questions, and that was the new decision by um, the Surgeon General to say that when you go to that the ICU reporting should only be what he called patients who are at an intensive level of care. He didn't define what that means. And so he's saying if, if somebody doesn't is not in an intensive level of care, they're not going to be reported on our statistics as an ICU bed. That just sounds crazy. We've been looking at the ICU bed statistics from the very beginning of this COVID incident. Why are we suddenly changing the requirements it only, you know, it sounds like there's an effort to be manipulating the data. So I'd like to think that's not what's happening here, but I think that needs to really be clarified. The Surgeon General needs to be real clear about what the numbers are. We need to be transparent. As Floridians, we're owed that much. We, we are owed transparency in this crisis. And um, I'd just like to see some leadership from Tallahassee. Senator Randolph Bracey of Orange County was hoping the governor would come up with some encouraging words to reassure his fellow Floridians during times of crisis. People tune in to these press conferences and they look for hope and they look for a feeling of safety in these really hard times. I don't know that what we watched today gives you that. Um, I don't know that we've ever watched one where it felt like he was talking to us as Floridians and telling us we're going to get through this and making us feel safe about what's about to happen what we're about to go through. 
it almost feels as if we're watching someone make excuses for things that are happening. Look, we all know that it's a disease that spreads. I mean, we can read, we see it on the newspapers. We get that part. The real question I think is what are we gonna do about it? Most people will say that the thing that we have to do is socially distance, is that we have to do, is we have to wear masks. We'll hear them say that, but we'll never see them push, uh, say that we should as a state mandatorily wear masks. That's become this political hot button issue, but it's really about safety. We don't live in a bubble. Young people don't live in this young person bubble. If we don't make sure that people who are getting this and catching this sickness don't wear masks and we don't mandate it, like we're mandating that the secretary go and close down nightclubs, then we'll get, we, we, we will never get out of this. So the two things I would say is, I just want our governor to be that leader and I want him to be, uh, show us some sort of way out of this. And I think that it's about time we do solid things that we know will work by mandating that we wear masks. Senator Janet Cruz of Hillsborough County was also looking for leadership, and she says that's apparently not going to happen as long as the governor follows the lead of the president. You know, it's like, what the hell did we just watch, honestly? I mean, I'm looking at the numbers. Overnight COVID cases are uh, at 3,289, up 100 deaths. You know, what we really have in Florida is a real failure of leadership, and the buck stops at the top with the governor and at every turn, he has ignored the warnings of medical professionals and listened instead to the advice of Donald Trump. Are you going to govern or are we just going to let the White House run the state? We're at the epicenter of the COVID crisis. The governor's current message, what was it? That it's fine and we have an explosion of cases because they are mainly young people and it defies medical science and common sense? Come on. I really do challenge this governor to tell a parent directly to their face that it's fine for their child to become infected, especially when a 17-year-old died from this horrible disease in Florida in the last few days. And I challenge the governor to explain why younger people get sick and why that won't lead to infections among older people that they interact with in uh, hardworking communities where it's multi-generational, you are saying, here's some collateral damage and we'll just have to deal with that. Only the strong will survive in Florida. Only the privileged will survive in Florida. Is that what you want? Governor, hey, I challenge you to go out to a local restaurant for a meal. I think that's something that you failed to do while urging millions of Floridians to return to some, sort, some form of normalcy. You're probably making sure that your newborn is safe. Well, I ask you to make sure that every newborn and every um, senior citizen in every household is safe. And I ask every Floridian to please, please wear a mask, practice social distancing, wash your hands regularly, avoid any unnecessary travel. And we need to work together to correct this, the governor's mistakes to get this outbreak under control. But no matter how much people complain about the lack of a statewide order requiring the use of protective masks, Governor DeSantis says it is not going to happen. 
You catch more flies with honey than vinegar. I think that when some people get ordered, sometimes they don't do that. Just that's why we did that in May. We thought that that would be a better way to go about it. Um, but then also, just you, you're seeing outbreaks in metro areas. You're not necessarily seeing them the same way in other parts of the state. And so, uh, when you do, uh, uh, when you attach criminal penalties for something, you got to enforce it. And the question is, in some of the parts of Florida, is that really a good use of resources? So I've encouraged the, the locals to fashion those those uh, policies. That, that fit their communities, and I think that they've they've done that. And um, you know, some state governors have pre preempted any uh, uh, of that type of activity from the locals, and they wanted to do it all. My view is is we got a big diverse state. The outbreak is not uniform. I mean, even now that you see more cases in Orlando than we did, um, you know, March, April, May. Uh, the demographic in terms of the age is different than what we're seeing in like Dade County. Um, and so how you approach that I think should be that. But I, um, uh, I, I think that the folks are now, you know, look, this was, if you go back, I mean, obviously March, it was like a big deal. The coronavirus came, everyone was on edge. We get into April and as we started going through April, you know, people started to realize Florida was going to do okay. We weren't going to have overrun hospitals, everything. And I think a lot of folks, particularly the younger folks, just kind of thought that, you know, was behind us and so I think some of the guard was let down now some of these businesses that's not just letting your guard down I mean I think they know what they're doing um, but uh, I think that that's just kind of been like a natural thing so now that this is something that is more back on the front burner now that you have local officials involved in doing some of this thing I think the message is uh, being sent and I do think people are gonna gonna respond positively to it all 12 state universities present their plans to reopen for the fall semester. Students were sent home back in March as the state battened down for the COVID pandemic. And the Board of Governors Chairman, Sit Kitson, says each university has now come up with its own individualized plan. Each university has a dedicated mission with unique strengths and characteristics. And it is essential to recognize that each campus community has an extraordinary environment that includes students from all regions of the state, the nation, and the world. The distinctiveness of each university makes it critical that every plan prioritizes the health and well-being of all students, faculty, staff, vendors, and visitors, particularly as, our, as older institutions continue to battle the COVID-19 pandemic. University plans should anticipate the agility necessary to respond to changing conditions, and each institution should enhance its resiliency. Equally important, is that the 12 universities remain focused in the delivery of high quality academic programs and services. A commitment to these priorities will enable our universities to continue to ensure academic performance that will lead to student success. As we all know, conditions change rapidly and these plans are living documents and may change as the situation develops. All of us, including the faculty, students, vendors, volunteers, and visitors need to come together to make this plan successful. No doubt that the fall semester will present challenges to all of us. Our universities must prepare to respond to possible virus cases with testing, tracing, and medical and mental health care for students and employees. We all need to plan for the possibility of a hurricane during the semester, as well as other unanticipated events. Preparation is the key, and I believe that our universities are ready. We are the number one ranked university system in the country, and together we will continue to lead the nation during these uncertain times. Florida Surgeon General Scott Rivkes has reviewed the reopening plans, and he gives them his official seal of approval. 
it is important that our students return to class and that we do this safely and smartly, which is what this meeting is all about. Um, I've read these different plans and they really show incredible thoughtfulness and thoroughness. Um, it also is important that each of these different plans builds upon the unique resources in the local communities. Uh, we are learning to live uh, healthy and productive lives now despite COVID-19 as we wait the production development of a vaccine. Uh, we advise the use of masks whenever social distancing is impractical as at this meeting. Uh, we greatly advise universities continue to message the importance of personal responsibility. These messages emphasize the importance of using facial coverings, frequent hand washing, the use of hand sanitizers, and practice of social distancing. Florida data informs us that a younger demographic is now testing positive for COVID-19 than before. Fortunately, the effects on the young are milder than those who are elderly or those with underlying medical conditions, but we need to continue to protect the elderly and those with underlying medical problems. Universities will need to use their good judgment in applying the best practices towards deterring the spread of COVID-19. Students who feel sick should refrain from going to class. The practice of disinfecting common areas in universities should be frequent and is feasible without great disruption of university life. If a student or a faculty member or a staff member should test positive for COVID, contact tracing will be done by our state epidemiologist to inform those who may have been in contact with the individual. These individuals will be asked to monitor their symptoms and get tested and remain under quarantine until they're cleared to return. Universities should disinfect areas where individuals may have been. The goal is not to disrupt the entire learning process, but rather to encourage personal responsibility and all efforts to provide for the health and well-being of students, faculty, and staff while remaining open and educating our future. Next up on the Sunrise Soapbox, you'll hear from Florida's Secretary of State on efforts to protect the elections from hackers, both foreign and domestic. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. The Florida Hospital Association has released the OPEN plan, designed to allow Florida's safe resumption of elective surgeries and procedures. OPEN stands for O, observe the COVID-19 rate of community occurrence. P, prevent transmission. E, establish the process to restore elective surgeries and procedures. And N, network with all healthcare providers. You can read the OPEN plan today at FHA.org. Welcome back. Our guest today on the Sunrise Soapbox is Laurel Lee. She serves as Secretary of State and presides over the Division of Elections. She's been working for the past year on a plan to harden the state's election system, which is sort of complex because really there isn't one. There are 67 individual systems run by the county election supervisors, and all of them had a part to play in fortifying the elections. Until recently, the Department of State and the supervisors of election largely managed the security of their networks and their infrastructure separately. The Department of State provided financial support. We would provide guidance uh, by way of best practices uh, and protocols uh, that we would advise should be adhered to in every county. But fundamentally, maintenance of those networks was being addressed at a local level. 
That all began to change in 2019 when Governor Ron DeSantis directed me to engage in a statewide review of our elections infrastructure. To do that, we had to cooperate in a very different and new way with all of the local elections officials around our state. It became clear early that if we wanted this process to be as effective and as thorough as we really needed it to be, that we needed to ensure we had consistent information from every county uh, and that we shouldn't rely simply on self-reporting for the strength of a network and the strength of a particular local environment. So we developed what we refer to as the Joint Election Security Initiative. Uh, we have an acronym, of course, we are a government agency, and our acronym for that process and that program is JESSE. So we developed this JESSE initiative, uh, and I'm so pleased to tell you that when we went to the supervisors of election and proposed this idea, our vision for how can we really take a good, strong look at where we stand and where we need to get, every single one of them, every single county across our state joined with us and partnered in this election security initiative. So the first thing we did was go out to each county. The Department of State cybersecurity experts went out to each county and conducted an elections-specific risk assessment on their networks, their elections infrastructure, and their physical security. So for the first time in Florida's history, we developed a true picture of where we stand, a baseline of from our starting place of where we needed to get. So we had that picture. Then we moved to step two, which was to work with these counties to address or mitigate any of the vulnerabilities that were identified in advance of 2020. So what have we done since? Uh, one thing that's important to know is that we have invested millions in our cyber infrastructure statewide uh, over the last several years. We have modernized and updated everything from software to hardware to firewalls uh, and all of the things that are associated with maintaining secure networks. Uh, we have also engaged in a process of training. One thing that we learned early on uh, is that if we, we can invest these millions of dollars and we can have the best tools and the best hardware, but if we don't train our employees uh, to learn about things like social engineering and phishing emails, that you know one employee clicks the wrong link and we're still made vulnerable despite these significant investments. So we've also engaged in a very elaborate plan of training, not only for every employee at the Department of State, but also providing those resources and those training out in the field uh, at every local elections office. We have five full-time employees who we refer to as cyber navigators, uh, and those full-time employees are the ones who are used not for maintaining our internal network, but for going out throughout the state and helping assist all of the localities and counties with their needs. As you might imagine, our counties are very differently situated. Some of our large urban counties have large budgets, they have large staffs, they include 
uh, internal, in-house IT professionals. Some of them have multi-person IT staffs inside uh, their offices. Others are in the opposite situation, where their budget may be small, their staff is very small, they don't have the ability to retain an on-site full-time IT coordinator. So those resources and having access to IT experts and cybersecurity experts who can deploy out across our state has really been an important tool in ensuring that every single county in our state can reach a minimum baseline of security. We are not in this fight alone. We partner very closely with our law enforcement agencies, FDLE, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, even the NSA are all engaged with us in this effort to secure our elections. So they too provide very useful and valuable opportunities for training uh, and also helping to shore up any vulnerabilities that are identified. They work together to make sure that we are advised of any potential threats, any emerging threats, uh, which helps us in turn be able to respond to those threats quickly and appropriately. Lee says there are plenty of other challenges like misinformation, disinformation, deep fakes. She says they all have the potential to taint the elections, but no one has figured out how to fix those yet. Lee was speaking to members of the Economic Club of Florida, and they actually met in person with social distancing, of course. Membership in the club tends to skew toward the older demos, and those of us in what I like to call the codger community take this way more seriously than some of our younger friends. Your calendar of events begins with a conference call meeting at 9 by the Board of Governors of Citizens Property Insurance. The Visit Florida Board of Directors meets by conference call at 9, and the Florida Commission on Offender Review also meets at 9. The Department of Transportation holds a webinar at 9.30 to talk about a new toll road from Collier County to Polk County. The Valencia College Board of Trustees meets online at 9.30. The Reemployment Assistance Appeals Commission meets at 9.30. The Southwest Florida Water Management District holds a webinar about a draft regional water supply plan. That's at 10. The South Florida State College Board of Trustees will hold a workshop at 10, followed by a board meeting at 1. That's in Avon Park. The Hillsborough Community College Board of Trustees holds a workshop at 2.30, followed by a regular board meeting at 4. And finally, it's time to check in with Florida Man. One is a bad boater, the other is a spitting image of an idiot. A Florida man is accused of stealing a $900,000 boat, ramming four channel markers, and then abandoning the damaged vessel, which drifted into an oyster bed. 28-year-old Donovan Russell Jester of Largo is charged with grand theft of a vessel. The 46-foot boat was stolen back in March. It took deputies time to track down a suspect. Jester was tied to the crime when investigators found his thumbprint on the cabin door. Damages estimated at $60,000. Bail is set at $50,000. And a Florida man is investigated by police after being accused of spitting in the face of a bartender who told him to wear a face mask. It happened at a place called The Pub, that's an LGBT bar, in Wilton Manors. Now, there are signs outside saying masks must be worn, but bartender Shane Cullinan says Gary Bouvier refused, and there was a confrontation. When Bouvier returned to the bar about seven minutes later, he was wearing a mask. And Cullinan says the guy lowered the mask just to spit in his face. Cullinan said it really hit home because he had a close friend with no pre-existing conditions who died after contracting COVID-19. Uh, Bouvier has since apologized on Facebook, blaming his behavior on, what else, alcohol. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.